Blog Talk Radio. Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. Strange to me. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And, and then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to see. Ladies and gentlemen of America, what is going on when innocent men get locked away? Ladies and gentlemen, have you stopped to ask the question, where is justice? It's far away. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. Um, uh, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it, it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. There you have it. Tough questions in need for answers. Lady Justice has gone missing. Where is she? Is this happening in America? The American dream has turned into a nightmare. Crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, we take a look at the unveiling of the software created by the IRP5. How many people believed in this product? How many people gave it rave reviews is the question. And we come up with an answer then, if it's that well made... What was the purpose to bring the RP5 down? We're going to discuss that tonight, and I'll tell you what, the software created by these men could have made a difference. This is AJC Radio. We take off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Dennis Merritt. 
Clint, Cliff Stewart, Sapson Riddle, William Williams, and the entire IRP5 men tonight in our studio as we begin to unveil where all of this really started. The hard work, the nights and early days and long nights, if you will, that went on in creating a software that would really change a nation had it been allowed to do so. And we're going to talk about that. People from former law enforcement agents to FBI, former FBI agents, saw this software as something very, very powerful and really something that could make a huge difference. And uh, we're going to get into that. David Banks is going to lean into some of that conversation, uh, the ongoing steps that were being taken and how it was sold. Really, uh, the idea of the software, rather, uh, became to be something to really be believed in. So uh, we're going to get into that conversation. Feel free to dial into the show tonight at 646-200-0628. That's 646-200-0628 as we have this conversation. And uh, William uh, also is going to bring some definite true uh, light to this story, to the software, uh, William. Uh, very much connected with this as well. Give us at least your thoughts on how important it is to at least uh, lay out on the canvas uh, the power of this software, and it was getting rave reviews everywhere. Well, I think um, the one thing about this software, it was before, it was ahead of its time. It really was. What it allowed and what it was going to allow these agencies to do was to really more efficiently share their information provide their their detectives, those in the field, information at hand, uh, share their information across organizations. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And what I said, meaning ahead of its time, these things are things that even right now we're struggling with. Certain companies and organizations are struggling to do. You got to think, this was years ago, of course, you know, 10, about 10 years ago, that all this was there. These guys had the vision. It was built ready for them to use um and it was just it was just really amazing i mean it was it was definitely ahead of its time no without question and david as we get into uh this conversation there's a lot of information i anticipate uh and just on the software alone we're probably going to do a part one and part two uh of exactly all that went into this the 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 rave reviews i guess you guys were at a point of of traveling uh even outside of the country uh, to to show folks what this software could do. This was something that was really had a lot of life to it. Explain a little bit about that, David. Yeah, we uh, we took uh, a very uh, I think methodical and appropriate approach to building this software after 9/11 to help our law enforcement. Uh, we solicited the help of law enforcement agencies. And law enforcement agency agents that actually came to work for the company, including FBI agents, uh, immigration and customs enforcement, former judge, um, NYPD officials, uh, all of those contributed to the development of our software. Uh, we didn't consider ourselves experts in law enforcement by any stretch of the imagination. So we went to the people, to the experts. Uh, we're good at building software. We're also good at listening. And what we were able to develop uh, was something that was a very simple, adaptable software solution that could be used by any agency to manage criminal investigations from the crime scene to the courtroom. 
Uh, make no mistake about it. Uh, we receive rave reviews and comments from many law enforcement agencies, uh, which, uh, which is what our motivation was after 9-11. And they, they confirmed that this was one guy from the NYPD that actually worked for us, said this was the best software he'd ever seen. Uh, as, re- as it relates to criminal investigation, he's worked, worked diligently to get it into the NYPD. And we'll get into some more uh, comments uh, from law enforcement officials and law enforcement publications about the software. Uh, uh, you shouldn't be disappointed, but you will be uh, in the software, but you will be disappointed in what the government did to bring us down. No, 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 without question. And uh, I believe the software, if I remember correctly, was in a textbook manual. Is that correct? Some type of, uh, uh, I guess, at a, uh, like, I, I presume something in regards to uh, some type of textbook of learning, if you will, that your, the, your, the software that the RP5 had created was used basically out there as a viable product in the, in the textbooks for training? Yes, uh, we'll discuss that also okay. in detail as well. It's a college textbook. Uh, and some of the comments they actually said uh, about the software. Um, uh, Wayne Hess uh, was an author, along with another uh, professor there at uh, uh, one of the universities, uh, and we'll discuss uh, their comments and the comments in the book. It's just absolutely shocking just how valuable the software was and just how critical it was to our law enforcement community. No, no, without question. Uh, Dave, did you have something on that? Well, one of the things that we also had is we had our, the products were designed for the smallest agencies right up to the largest agencies. So we had uh, a small product called Silk Basic, and there was a sheriff that was still using that product in 2013. Is that right? And and, uh, you said a sheriff? What sheriff's department was it? Do you remember what sheriff's department was, Yeah, We had a few sheriff's departments, Greater Southeast um, Missouri. Uh, uh, county and also Rio Grande uh, Sheriff's Department uh, as well. There's a few of them that were using this software. Okay, so look, there was something with this software, uh, as we know, uh, that was going to make a huge difference. And the people, again, you had former law enforcement folks, uh, former FBI agents that had really were trying to put the faith of the software as it needed to be uh, for the government to really say this is something we want to do. So there was some tweaking. There was some things that had to go on with it, which apparently happened. Is that correct, David? Well, software is not necessarily built uh, in a vacuum. What uh, a lot of companies have made the mistake in doing was developing software and then trying to force law enforcement uh, to retrofit law enforcement process and procedures. Uh, we created a more adaptable solution that adapts to any law enforcement agency and, and did it in a very rapid fashion. So agencies didn't have to change their processes and procedures. We, our software adapted to those procedures instead of trying to make them uh, change their process and procedures to actually fit our software. Well, absolutely. And again, we're going to get into that further tonight. Uh, and again, there was demonstrations done in our nation's capital uh, with every possible group from law enforcement in this country uh, that had an opportunity and what they saw they were floored with because they had never seen anything like it. Uh, today we unveil the software 
of the IRP-5 and the creation that took place. And I'll tell you what, uh, how this ended up in criminal court uh, is the mystery of all, which we have now figured out was simply misconduct at its highest level. Uh, We're going to be back on the other side of the break. The software unveiled by the IRP-5. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. There are no loose ends in TV procedural dramas. At the end of the hour, the bad guy always gets what's coming to him. Unfortunately, the real world is a lot more complicated. We know from the work of the Innocence Project and other organizations in the Innocence Network that the system doesn't always get it right. According to the National Registry of Exoneration, since 1989, nearly 2,000 people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. What people don't realize is a good number of those people pleaded guilty to crimes even though they were innocent. In fact, in nearly 10% of the nation's DNA exonerations, people pleaded guilty to serious crimes and agreed to serve significant prison time because the system is stacked against them, especially if they are poor and people of color. That's right. The stakes are so high that we have innocent men and women agreeing to serve long prison sentences. A system that puts that much pressure on people to plead guilty is a problem. Visit guiltypleadproblem.org to learn more about the men and women who are pressured into pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. And join us in demanding that our elected officials do something to protect the innocent people who get caught up in a broken criminal justice system. Thank you. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. History is important because it shows where you're coming from and where you're going. Type 2 diabetes is something that runs in my family, which means I'm at risk. In fact, one in three American adults are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And knowing this, if I do nothing, that family history becomes my family's future. And my family is too important to me for that. Take the risk factor assessment today at AskGreenNo.com. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crime. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. 
but somehow about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence on average 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-con, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip-up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you want to join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to perform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. Do we have a gun? What's up? Do we have a gun. Why do you ask that, kiddo? Can I play with it? No. No, absolutely not. It's not a toy. You know that. Do I? I bet it looks like one. Yeah, well, it's not. Anyway, I need it to protect you, your sister and mom. From what? From bad guys, like on TV. But what about the eight kids who got shot every day by mistake? Their daddies probably thought they were safe, too. Where'd you hear that? TV. Yeah, well, maybe we don't believe everything we hear on TV. Where do you keep it? <laughs> it's hidden. I bet it's on top shelf of the closet, under your sweatshirt. Is it loaded? It's not. I, I keep the bullets... In the boots with the red laces, and the chest beside the bed? I haven't found them yet, but I'm sure I can. You always told me to be curious. Remember when I found my Christmas gift? I'm a good climber, you know. No, no, that's not what I meant. Look, I, I need to be ready if someone breaks in. But what about when it's just me and Mom? You taught me to be brave. I could use a gun to protect her. No, Justin, I promise. I'll teach you how to handle a gun when you're old enough. What if I don't make it to old enough? I could get bullied and decide it's too much for me. It would be so easy with our gun. Our gun? Nobody. My gun. But it is our gun. In our home. Happens all the time. I'll make sure that doesn't happen. I'm always here for you. But, Dad, you're not always here. Meeting a teen girl online is actually pretty easy. You can go into any chat room and just start talking. Most of the girls are usually so insecure and desperate for attention. Attention from older guys is totally flattering. They're so much more mature and understanding than the guys might. Age actually works to my advantage. 
they like to brag to their friends that they're dating an older guy, so I just play along and pretend I'm really interested. Interested in the same things I am. You can talk forever and really get to know someone without worrying about looks or whatever. That's the best thing about chatting. Chatting seems unthreatening to them, so they lower their guard. After a while, I start talking about how we're soulmates and how lucky we are to have found each other. Other people don't understand. I know what I'm doing. If you really care about each other, there's nothing wrong with me. Meeting them is the goal. Once I get them out of their house, well, that's when things get really interesting. Online predators know what they're doing. Do you? Ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we title this show, The Unveiling of the Software uh, Created by RP Solutions and in studio, the RP5, uh, really letting you know that, look, so many steps were taken, so much interest was given uh, to the point that it is overwhelmingly clear that this product was something that the government entities of the United States government simply had never seen before. At a time when, of course, there's always terrorist threats to the United States and to this country, this software, you, have, you had top officials within the government or former officials in the government that spoke very, very well of this software. Uh, and that is what we want to kind of deal with here. Uh, because this is something that was not something that was just simply made up. This was something that had Washington, D.C. buzzing. All across the country, people are like, what is this software? And, David, if I, if I remember correctly, uh, the Silk software was at such a level. There were things beginning to happen. I, think, I believe you met with the Inspector General in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania of Pennsylvania. Yeah, that is correct, but that was later on. There was there had been a lot that had transpired prior to that. Sure, and, we, and, we, we, and I'll have you set that line up. But the, the interest was that these people were excited. What they saw moved them that this is something they definitely needed to have. Actually, the chief investigator for the inspector general's office had said that, they're, that they're, them and their investigators and the entire inspector general's office were excited about the venture. Mm -hmm. uh, that's actually an email. Um, yes. And they were so excited that the inspector general was actually setting up a personal meeting, an introduction to Mayor Michael Nutter at the time, who was the mayor of Philadelphia. So you're talking about an entire uh, city, state, that this was something once taken off would have spread like wildfire. No pun intended to that. But would have, would have just been a domino effect, I, I would think. 100%. Uh, the deputy mayor of Justice and Public Safety for the city of Philadelphia at the time, his name was Everett Gillison. Not sure if he's still in that post. It's been quite a few years. Um, uh, he, we have numerous email communications from him uh, stating that uh, he, was, he was looking forward to see how Silk integrated with uh, police systems. Uh, Jerry Cardenas, who at the time was the director of information technology for 
of the Philadelphia Police Department told the FBI Silk looking was exactly, and, we, and he, that's the term he told the FBI was exactly what they were looking uh, for and, and was an exact fit to what they were looking to do. At the time there in Philadelphia, IBM uh, had a contract uh, with, the sub, with subcontractor Motorola to modernize the Philadelphia Police Department uh, system. They were failing miserably at, the, at that particular time uh, on the search warrant module, not to mention they were uh, behind and uh, overrun on their budget. So we were able to, within two weeks, uh, to provide the search warrant module uh, and, and ready to implement that. Uh, and we were working on two contracts at the time, one with the, with the Philadelphia Police Department and the other with the Inspector General's Office, both of which we have email communications uh, concerning, uh, pr- uh, oh. but that was obviously scuttled by the government when uh, the United States Attorney Matthew, uh, Assistant United States Attorney Matthew Kirsch, contacted the city of Philadelphia, ruined our business with them, and said an indictment was coming. Uh, and central to his indictment and his presentation to the jury was that we really didn't have any valuable software. So. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy. He couldn't allow us to gain that uh, foothold in Philadelphia or any other agency. And what you'll find is that uh, the FBI took steps to ensure that we could not conduct business or close business to be able to pay our bills uh, so they can uh, so they could manufacture this case against us. And I understand there was something in the works at the NYPD in New York City. Is that correct? That is correct. We had actually, we had a guy who had retired from the NYPD. His role uh, in the NYPD was recommending, evaluating and recommending software solutions to the detective bureau of the NYPD. And we were so close to closing business with them, but again, the FBI was undermining our ability to close business even with the NYPD. So whoever had set this up was working diligently behind our back. It was probably some corporate, some corporate espionage working with the FBI. We just don't know. Uh, it's just very bizarre, uh, some of the happenings that were going on at that time and the deliberate steps taken by the government to make sure we didn't get that business again, because it would have been a serious threat to billion dollar uh, corporations who were uh, trying to get this business. Well, listen to this. And I'm going David to the gentleman you uh, referenced uh, retired. He was a veteran of the New York police department. This is what he writes. Listen to this. He says, I provided extensive subject matter expertise and engaged in numerous teleconferences with the software development team to clarify understanding to business process and workflows. I was responsible for being on the ground at the NYPD and to facilitate demonstrations and business development activities associated with the Silk Solution. This is what he says. He says, in a desire to engage the NYPD in a business relationship and subsequent to many demonstrations, uh, conversations with the NYPD members, the IRP Solutions Corporation repeatedly made numerous modifications of their Silk software. In this effort to satisfy the specific needs of the NYPD, I strongly believe that IRP went beyond the call of duty to develop and present solutions that would fit the department. 
This is a veteran of 20 years that you were just talking about, David. But then he goes further. Listen to this. Based on my experiences with other vendors, I can attest that I have never witnessed a company that has shown more sensitivity to how the NYPD does business than IRP. In fact, the company branded a version of Silk, PDX Solutions. I was the IRP Solutions, excuse me, IRP Solutions would have closed business with NYPD in the first quarter of 2004. This this retired veteran is saying that's how solid this product was. Yeah, and one thing we were, we had extended ourselves, and that's one thing the government was aware about. We had extended ourselves. Uh, they claimed that we were duping staffing companies. No, we were, the staffing companies were providing labor and temporary labor for uh, the modifications we were making on behalf of the NYPD as well as the Department of Homeland Security in an effort to gain a contract and close business. And it's interesting that Mr. Shannon from the NYPD said early 2004, he had actually communicated that to us, that he anticipated us being able to close business with the NYPD uh, in the first quarter of 2004, and which, is, which is what motivated us to extend ourselves and, and, uh, and to continue receiving credit from staffing companies. Uh, we knew a contract uh, with a large agency was imminent. Uh, either NYPD or the Department of Homeland Security, both were, were very hot prospects of moving towards a, a conclusion of a contract with them. Well, well and, and the gentleman goes on to say that, uh, and they, he mentions you, David. He says, indeed, David Banks expressed to me many times his desire to close the NYPD business for the express, the express purpose of being able to satisfy some outstanding debt. So, and I, I, don't let me ask, I know this, this wasn't given to the jury, this letter. No, it was not. That is absolutely insane to me. And he says here, he goes further to go here, he says, as a result of years of experience in investigation, administrative operation roles, I believe that Silk Software offered the best application for law enforcement and the NYPD that, had, that they had seen. In fact, several NYPD executives for which IRP Solutions conducted presentations and demonstrations expressed the same opinion and commented that the department was sorely in need of such a tool. And talking about that, it was actually, uh, and I was there at the meeting, assistant chief of detectives at the time, which went on to be chief of patrol under uh, Commissioner Ray Kelly. His name was... Uh, I think it was Robert Gianelli, I'm certain of the last name. Mr. Gianelli said that he wanted to make Silk, our software, which is an acronym for Case Investigative Lifecycle, CILC, he wanted to make it his legacy to the NYPD. And so that's another uh, just huge statement that was made. The software was all we said it was, and it was validated by uh, law enforcement professionals at the highest level. And let me finish with this last piece, and Kendrick, I'm going to come to you. He says here in closing, during my tenure with the department, I have never witnessed a company or group of professionals that did more than the IRP Solutions Corporation to step up to the challenge to meet and exceed the requirements related to specific NYPD technology initiatives and needs. And he goes further to say that IRP Solutions went beyond the call 
I mean, this is something that should have been given to the jury. This should have been given to the jury. And how that goes that way, with that type, this is a 20-year veteran. And he's, I don't, that is absolutely amazing to me. And it speaks to the validity of this product. And the fact that he said to David Banks, I have been in constant communication. That's called David Banks and the IRP Solutions Corporation working to do business. No crime. They were working to do and to get business. And this is just one veteran of the NYPD that states what he states there. Go ahead, Kendrick. And I think what gets lost in this conversation was the amount of work that went into to getting these accolades from these departments. And as you were saying, how we went beyond the call, I personally would hear the discussions after uh, David would come back from the NYPD, and they would have a desire or something that to see, can Silk Software do this? Well, David would come back with his knowledge because he sat down. I mean, there was plenty of times he sat down with so many agencies. This wasn't just built in a box. We talked to agencies to discuss what are their pain points, what are they looking for, what do they need? But on the other end, our challenge was this had to be simple to use. The software couldn't get in the way of them doing their job. It had to be powerful on the one end, but also if a new officer came on who may not be uh, that skilled with computers, it still was something they could get on and, and figure out, and it was intuitive. I would see sometimes with David and our uh, human factors uh, developer, his name was Paul Pinkney, you would think they were arguing because that's how passionate – David was no. It has. It has to hit these criteria. It has to. He knew what the customer wanted. That's why when you went back to NYPD and you hear these comments from John Shannon that they were yep. so confident. This is beyond the call. It was powerful, but yet simple and elegant that any officer could have got in there and got the job done. Understood how the software worked. Well, well, the issue is, is that you got people commenting about this case. Those are the naysayers that say, well, something must have happened. That's not what we're reading here today. That's not what we're hearing. We're hearing about a veteran of the NYPD that had no dog in this fight, that came and said that he has never seen a professional group of men with such dedication to what these men were passionate about, and they were creating something. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is just one piece. If that letter gets to a juror with these accolades of the IRP solutions and these men, I promise you there is no conviction because that is flooring. That is overwhelming accolades about the IRP5 and also the, the, the software that they're talking about. Go ahead, William. You know, one of the things I was just sitting here thinking about was, excuse me, the difference with what, what they had existing. A lot of these organizations had, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong, they were, they were just basically records management systems. That's what they had. So for all of a sudden, when they, had, they saw this, it was literally like going from a horse and buggy to a car. I mean, th- you would see them at demonstrations light up because they saw that, number one, the, sa- the software was new, was innovative, it captured their process. And they could see it was just going to make their lives so much easier. And you, it was it was, every time, every demonstration, no matter the organization, you would see the same look in their faces. They would just light up, and it was just night and day. And that's why 
when you read this letter, that's what you Unbelievable. It, that's what you see. You, this man grasped it. He said, that's it. That's what we've needed this whole time. And then you sit here and you say, going back to if the jury would have seen this. That's what I'm saying. If they would have seen the Avarelli letter, all this evidence. That's right. All of it. And that's what's so significant about this story that the listeners have to grasp. This software, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, was so innovative. I mean, you got to think, at this table right here, there's probably about 15, 20 years of IT average of IT experience here. These guys took their know-how and took what the police department needed. These guys were needing it, and they built it, brought it to life. Look, like I said, a good point, William. That statement from that NYPD veteran, and this is what really floors me. He's, he names David Banks of constant communication, presentation. These are men working. These are men working, doing their job. How is it? This is what makes the actions of this federal court, this judge, uh, federal judge, Christine Arguello, Matthew Kirsch, John Walsh, Sunita Hazra. This is what makes this so egregious because and these are the facts. This is not a letter I typed up today. It's true. This is a veteran of the NYPD that says we were excited. When you make a statement that we have never seen a group of men more professional, that infuriates me for the fact that this was a product that could have saved lives. And, and you got a judge and a prosecutor who apparently was absent doing ethical training at the bar. This is insanity to me. Well, and, and this is another thing. Now, this is firsthand. David and I worked on Saturdays. We worked late at night. Building that software, he sat on calls in meetings with different organizations, different representatives, Capturing the requirements, coming back to us saying, this is what we have to build. So to Kendrick's point, when you it, – it was amazing. It was really amazing to be a part of. And that's why when you – these the, that, that is probably one of many letters. Yes. One of many letters that could have been written on behalf of the organization, on behalf of David, his work, these other guys, every one of them contributed. And there was long nights. I'm talking about long nights. Listen, William, I'll tell you right now, this one-page letter that I just read solidifies the work that was going on at RP Solutions. By itself, take everything else off the table. We will not do that, figuratively speaking. You go with that letter from a 20-year veteran at NYPD that was passionate about this software and communicated with David Banks and excited that this was a product and the best he had ever seen. Now, if that doesn't give validity to this product, why don't somebody help me out here and tell me otherwise? David, go ahead. Now, that is confirmed, and we'll get into some more details. That is confirmed by other law enforcement professionals, including in our own backyard. We're from Colorado Springs, Colorado. 
Lauren Kramer at the time, he was the chief, he was the former chief of the Colorado Springs Police Department and a former LAPD commander. This is what he stated. We have his letter. said that he was impressed with Silk and that IRP Solutions has developed an innovative and timely solution for law enforcement agencies. These are his words. Chief, another chief of the police department, these are his words. And that's not all. We, 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 we're going we're gonna to get into well, some more. There, there's plenty more uh, praise for our software. I'm floored right now. And I don't know how long we've been talking about this story, but the difference is the RP5 are in the studio. When you begin to break down this, folks, let, let me be very clear. That's one letter. That's one. I'm floored with that letter. And I can promise you this same letter was taken to Washington, D.C. On multiple trips to say these men have been wrong. These men were simply doing their job. And for any judge, any U.S. attorney's office, to fabricate some type of crime, this, this doesn't read as crime material. And on top of that, RP Solutions did not, they worked with former FBI agents, former law enforcement people. I'm just going to bring you in and say, hey, we're doing something fraudulent here, but why don't you come on and join us and so I can get my go-to-jail-free card very quickly. Why would I hire law enforcement? And it's my understanding, these were former FBI agents as well, David, is that correct? There were two former FBI agents. One's name was Dwayne Fusillet. The other was John Epke. They were former supervisory special agents. I actually have their resumes, and we, and we want to break down their resumes. I actually have their resumes. Uh, we have their independent contractor agreement. And uh, the other guy who, who, who headed customs enforcement for uh, Denver, he was, he was the SAC, the special agent in charge in Denver. He told the FBI prior to the raid that we had a viable product, and yet they still raided our business and, and uh, stated in, in a search warrant affidavit that we were a purported software company. It's ridiculous. It really is. Ladies and gentlemen, the temperature has gone up about probably 25 to 30 degrees in studio tonight. On the other side of this break, make no mistake about it, we're just getting started. Buckle in. We take off. After this, this is IJC Radio. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words.
How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. And that's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. And that's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioural problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty 
for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. My nephew Joshua was 13 when he was killed in 2001. Was living with me at the time. He asked me, can I go by Billy's house? I thought, well, you know, what's the harm in that? You know, my mistake was I assumed that there was a parent home. I assumed his father had his weapon properly secured. The kid had removed the magazine, so the kid was sure that the gun was safe. And he, what he didn't know was there was a bullet chamber. Joshua had this fear of weapons because he lost his mother to gun violence. I think this kid really pulled the trigger to show Joshua that, that it was not dangerous. The hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life is to tell my mom we have to bury her grandson. The pain was so great, we just wanted to do something positive. And we also wanted to try to prevent families from experiencing the same pain that this put my family through. We began working with the End Family Fire campaign. Family Fire is the accidental shooting of a family member with a weapon that was improperly secured, improperly stored. It's a difficult conversation for people. You don't want to ask or say anything to your neighbors because you don't want to offend them. But there are important things we should know. Where are they going when they play? <laughs> what is the environment of that home? We have to understand that children are inquisitive, they're curious. And there's not one corner of the house that they haven't gone through. If you're a gun owner, you have to make sure your weapon is inaccessible. It will save the family from the pain and the trauma that my family's put through. Because once that happens, it's forever. And if I could prevent one family from experiencing that, then his life will have some purpose. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. I'll tell you, it's getting hot in the studio as we begin to unveiled really the power and the magnitude of this software created by the RP5 and the accolades, if you will, that's coming from people high up in law enforcement across this country is absolutely unbelievable that this case again, which we've been saying over and over again, would make its way into any courtroom in this country. And, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm again, I'm blown away of the accolades given to the IRP-5, the work ethic uh, being praised by a 20-year veteran of the NYPD, 
talking about he has never seen in his tenure a group of men more professional and eager to get a product uh, at their, uh, at, you know, at, at the NYPD. I, again, I'm blown away by it. Uh, feel free, ladies and gentlemen, to dial into 646-200-0628. 646-200-0628. Clint, you had something that you wanted to add on this, uh, on this topic. Yeah, well, uh, the unusual nature of the software was based on the fact that uh, there wasn't a lot of sophistication back at the turn of the century uh, in terms of police departments. When we met the NYPD, they were still using typewriters. Uh, they gave us their form, uh, that they, uh, paper form that we uh, reconstituted into a workflow on their behalf. And that word was also something that wasn't uh, a part of the uh, industry uh, term, workflow, how they get their job done, their business processes, as David alluded to before, their processes and their procedures, we would incorporate them into the software. And every agency is different, whether you uh, 40,000 strong like NYPD or you just 12 uh, agents at a, at a uh, county or small city, uh, something like Canyon City or what have you. So we would go in with each one of them and see what their process was, incorporate that, identify the right uh, software version for them, and that's what made it so powerful. So if I remember correctly, these, this is what made the software so unique, that it could adapt to any existing system. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So that's why the buzz is what it is. Wait a minute. We don't have to talk, uh, throw the old computers out. Right. This software was created to uniquely fit in, in whatever capacity, whatever, uh, whether it's NYPD, you got something different maybe in, in Los right. Angeles. That is absolutely amazing. But this is why the buzz is what it was. And the, the concept, there are a couple of concepts. David mentioned it earlier, the case investigative life cycle, all aspects of it, from the crime scene to the courtroom. The other aspect was the investigative resource planning all your resources that it took to get that investigation done whether it was uh, uh evidence whether it was uh something like search warrants or canvassing interviews all of these were different modules that you confidential informants all of these things were a part of the resources that were planned to make the investigation a a success and when, when you hear that, you're talking about a complete package, Com totally complete. So not only, if, if, I'm, if I'm saying this correct, you had issues within the software that address the crime scene. Right. Things that address uh, suspects. Right. They, so, I mean, you talk about making law enforcement, not only for... Not only from your local level police departments, right. but then you're talking about if you're dealing with ICE or you're dealing with uh, the CIA or the FBI, whatever. This is something that would have revolutionized right. really how business is done. Is that correct? And that's what caused us to put so much work into it. Every time we went to another agency, they said, well, our business functions like this. And so this different department, right. the, the workflow the procedural flow, the different uh, 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 report and investigation names, and the different people who have to check off on those things, we had to incorporate that into the software. David, go ahead. Thanks, Clint. We'll tell you a little bit about how that happened. After 9-11, after 
the Congressional 9-11 Commission determined that information sharing and collaboration failures due to antiquated uh, case management systems contributed to the attacks, uh, the 9-11 attack. Now, our goal was to effectively get the smallest agency to share information with the largest agencies. We had to make sure the smaller agencies had electronic or digital capabilities so that they could effectively communicate. Otherwise, what was going on at the time, even in some of the fusion centers that they had set up, they were still going through documents, notes, and stuff like that. Uh, Part of our uh, methodology was set up on collection analysis, distribution, and presentation pillars. So you had to get the collection of the information into digital form to be able to effectively share that information instead of passing paper or trying to uh, or trying to scan in notes and all this other type of stuff. At the time, and it's, this still goes, goes on today, uh, our government law enforcement agencies are still in, in many cases in a document management mindset and not an information management mindset. Mm-hmm. And that's where we were at the time. We said, we, you guys need to manage information. Documents can be generated. Reports can be generated. But the information uh, is the lifeblood uh, of, of everything they do in criminal investigation. So our goal was to make sure law enforcement could easily uh, manage their information and then generate whatever documents or records they needed and, and, and not work in a backward fashion to look at the document only, but uh, the information was critical. So it sounds like to me that this software and the implementation to implement this software really saved law enforcement agencies major dollars on training. Is that correct? Ultimately, in the long term, it would because it would make their job more efficient and more effective. There was actually a time at the NYPD, and this is this occurred while we were there. The commissioner, there was an increase in burglary. Uh, the commissioner... Ray Kelly at the time wanted a report and needed information on these burglaries. Well, it took them days and maybe and possibly, if I recall, over a week to even try to pull this information together. And at the time, it wasn't considered very accurate. Mm-hmm. That's because they were still on paper. Uh, uh, the NYPD uh, DD5, they had a DD5 pink and, and blue form. Uh, and I'll, there's another story surrounding that that they were still typing in. These were very long, granular uh, documents that made it impossible to do it effectively on a typewriter. Are you talking about typing information with a typewriter? Yes, and they had carbon copies. The DD5s had carbon copies. Now, I'll, I'll tell you a quick little story. Uh, while we were trying to uh, promote and John Shannon was trying to promote the large solution. Uh, we I came up with an idea. We were going to, we took those forms as Clint talked about, and we made a smaller solution just where we they could digitize their DD5 blue and pink forms. Now, what we did once we finished that, it took I think a few weeks to actually put that together. Uh, Shannon has provided us with blank copies of DD5 uh, pink and blue forms. Now, what we did, we put, after we digitized it and, and made an electronic 
networkable application out of the DD5, we took a copy of a DD5 blue and pink and we sent it to the commander of each precinct detective squad and told them in the letter that if they wanted to get the solution, they would obviously have to contact the chief of detectives at the time, who was George Brown. Well, George Brown became upset. He felt like we went behind his back, and he was upset with us, and then he didn't want to do business with us on that particular piece. But we didn't understand that. We thought uh, the, the, our thinking was that, well, if the, the rank and file – and his precinct detective squad commanders one really thought something would be beneficial and efficient for them to use that the department would go after and, and start to really take a serious look at that and get this solution into their hands. So why the kickback? What was the why the why? It's I think it's more as NYPD politics and possibly the approach. But uh, all we did is say contact them. They were so inundated with calls. I think that's probably what irritated uh, uh, Chief Brown at the time is that so many people were calling for the software because I'm telling you, it it would probably would have made them at least 200% more effective. It would have made the issue of of searching for information and getting information even to the commissioner level that much quicker uh, for their uh, uh, for their. analysis uh, processes that they do in, in, in the department. Well, what's bizarre about that, if my phone is ringing off the hook about a software package presented by RP Solutions that is of that magnitude, that efficient, that makes my job easier. Why would anyone have a problem with that? So if I'm getting phone calls, it tells me and to our listeners out there, let me be very clear. This does not sound like a product being created or with the intent to commit a crime. These guys are flourishing at this point. You've got the largest, I believe NYPD is the largest police uh, department in the country, I think along with Chicago, right? No, Chicago is... is- substantially smaller. They are substantially smaller. So you're talking about the largest law enforcement agency in the land. Excited, motivated, passionate. This is absolutely unbelievable to me. So you have all these things working. You got David Banks talking to the inspector general in Pennsylvania or Philadelphia. You have NYPD. That's, you know, something's in the oven there. You got Washington, D.C. asking for demonstrations of this software. Every law enforcement entity in D.C., Department of Justice, ICE, the FBI, the CIA, then what is going on? It's mayhem. A product that is really out here so strong. Why then would somebody try to sabotage these men? We got the answer to that already. Because they never seen it on this fashion before. And the work, the sweat, the tears that went into this product. I'm telling you right now, this does not sound like a company that's trying to play a game. Listen, this was a need for law enforcement agencies all over the country. And I'll tell you this right now. If the NYPD adapts this software, 
the rest of the nation follows suit. I can guarantee it. Because they are judged, really, by, by law enforcement across the country. NYPD is known as, the, if you will, the big brother of law enforcement. And policing, yeah. And policing. And for the prosecution, the government, rather, to even think about trying to formulate some crime. Did they not do their homework on the business that was going on here? They didn't care. When, when you're trying to take somebody down and remove them from the competitive landscape, so this is uh, uh, your intro talks about business is war. And this was, this was dirty, uh, not only dirty, but it was unlawful what they did. Absolutely. William, go ahead. No, I, one thing I was thinking about is to understand, you know, David has shined some light on the product itself. One of the things that was, to me, was so interesting working on it, we always hear about NYPD. At the time we were working on it, there were 77 precincts in New York City, and that's all the boroughs. And you can imagine what they were having to deal with if there's if they're literally sitting there typing on typewriters, you yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. You know, when you talk about the complexity, the feature-rich capability of this software, you take an agency, NYPD, seventy-seven precincts, and now you connect them. Now they're able to share information. Now police officers are able to get information that happened across town, happened in the Bronx, happened in Brooklyn. It's amazing. Well, you talk about the complexity, but yet the very simple. You had, to, you had both of those together. Very complex, but very easy and adaptable to any existing system yes. that this software would be put into. Dave, you got something? Well, that was one of our main goals as we were making the software, is to make it as easy to use as possible. We knew that there were going to be officers that have never even touched a computer before. We had to have it simple so that they could sit down and without even thinking about it, would be able to use it. And we were able to accomplish that. This is, is, man, I'm telling you, this this is over the top. Samson, go ahead. No, I was just in there thinking about it. I mean, and the way it's being described being simple yet powerful. I mean, like who in the the software development or industry at large would not want something like that? I mean, and it's, I think it just goes to the underlying corruption in the system that put these men behind bars for eight years that, you know, they the, the big boys, quote unquote, in the in the industries, they knew that these gentlemen had someone that would rival them for years, probably take a large portion of their business away from them. And that's why it all happened. I mean, you think about it. If you can sit, you know, little Johnny officer behind a keyboard who's probably only seen one three times in his life, but he can effectively use the software to not only collaborate with people within his within his department but across various departments across the city, across states, across agencies. I mean, there, there's nothing to stop it. There's absolutely well, nothing to stop let it. Let me tell you something. It's a freight train. Absolutely. Try to get in the way if you want to. This is a freight train. And to try to stop it is absolutely insanity. And when David says that, uh, David Banks goes into the, the when you're dealing with other competitors, it is my understanding that there is no other software anywhere across this globe that touches silk. 
That's what makes it so powerful. That's what makes it so unique. And that is what makes it work. And I'm going to tell you, that's a domino effect. Because, like I said, NYPD picks this up. Pennsylvania picks this up. California's next. Colorado already at the sheriff's level. Already, you're talking about a freight train that cannot be stopped. Absolutely. And this government and federal judge Christina Aguayo, the, the problem lays at her feet for even allowing this to go to trial, for allowing this to be put on any docket as far as a criminal case is absolutely insanity. We're coming back, folks. Take a quick break. We're coming back. We're just getting started. The IRP5 and the unveiling of Silk, the software that could change the nation. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now, add a wrongful conviction to that. Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Please have a seat. I'll be honest. Your resume, no one amused you. I know. Okay, so what would you bring to my company? What do you need? I need a hard worker. Good. I've got two part-time jobs and I help my parents pay the bills. I need problem-solving skills. I got through high school without a car, a phone, or a computer. No college degree, though. Not yet, but life's taught me a lot and I'm ready for more. Well, you're not the typical kind of candidate that I hire. But you are exactly what I'm looking for. Your company could be missing out on the candidates it needs most. Learn how to find, cultivate, and train a great pool of untapped talent at gradsoflife.org. Hey, everybody, it's going to be Every year, almost 40 children die of heat stroke after being forgotten in a vehicle in 70 degree weather. It takes only minutes for the inside of a car to heat up like an oven. At 104 degrees, heat stroke begins, followed by loss of consciousness. Yeah. It's an hour and a half or so. Mm-hmm. 
without your child, live without them forever. Look Before You Lock, brought to you by Kids in Cars. I wish I was in school. If only I had a math test today. Or a book report to give. I wish I was in school. I'll stay after class. I'll clean the chalkboard. I'll do extra homework. I'll skip recess. I wish I was in school. I wish I was in school. I really wish I was in school. School ends, but free lunches for your kids don't have to. Find your local food bank at feedingamerica.org slash summer meals for help. Together, we're Feeding America. Say goodbye to affordability and say hello to losing control. Discover Price Gougesol, the latest outrageously expensive drug from Big Pharma. It's impossible to afford and reverses the ability to pay other bills. Because drug companies raise prices to pay for commercials like this one, side effects may include overdrawn bank accounts, bad credit scores, higher health care costs, children who don't get Christmas presents, and in some cases, the need to stop taking your medicine. If you experience any of these side effects, contact your financial advisor right away. Out-of-control drug costs are no joke. Yet nine of the ten biggest pharma companies spend more on advertising than research and development. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. There was a shooting. Gunman When news and headlines following an act of gun violence fade away, who's left? The families. Gun violence is real. It affects more people than you would ever imagine. Losing a family member is one of the worst things that anyone can ever go through. This is something that's often forgotten, like what happens to the people after the incident. Although our country struggles to agree on a long-term solution to gun violence, we can all agree on one thing. Any family suffering a loss as a result of gun violence needs our support. Focus needs to shift to the human being. These continue to happen, and more people have join the club that we didn't ask to be a part of. There's families that are not getting the help that they need. It seems like there's nobody really rallying around the people who have experienced the hardship that we have. So many families in need, and I can really empathize with that. They need our love, compassion, and hope. Life for these families may not get any easier. Their lives are never going to be the same, ever. But with the support of others, they will get stronger. We can help. The Christina Grimmie Foundation, building a legacy of hope and inspiration. I wanted to be in the military since I was since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. 
I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said, I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. So most people don't understand the importance of exercising and eating right. Most people think it's about getting super buff or eating grass to keep that perfect body, but to those who believe that are wrong. Exercising regularly and getting the right balance of nutritious food leads to a common diagnosis known as healthy. Now healthy may sound mainstream and boring, but it's real. It improves your immune system to prevent sickness, boosts self-confidence and controls body weight, gives you energy and improves your overall happiness. So next time you think that's not bad, think again and be the best you you can be. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. And I'll tell you what, this has been a show of information. And Dennis, as we were talking earlier, as the more you hear about this case, it just it breeds new life every time we hear it. Uh, what I've learned tonight thus far is this software was overwhelmingly uh, looked at and was in the process, not of a little bit of uh, business. We're talking major business. And uh, I'll tell you what, this is something that I'm just blown away with tonight. We say, if we said it once, we'll say it again. Uh, these, these are things that make you really look at the criminal justice system and the injustice suffered by the IRP-5 uh, it's pretty overwhelming. It's over the top. Uh, Dennis, your thoughts on that? Uh, I agree uh, totally. This software was unbelievable. I mean, the ability uh, to tailor it uh, to small police departments and large, and then uh, for these guys to, I mean, really uh, use the opportunity to make sure uh, uh, that, that whoever was uh, looking at the software would be pleased. I mean, it's just awesome, and it kind of it kind of blows your mind that why would you want to stop something like this? And I understand, you know, you got the big, big, you know, big wigs and you know, big industry. Uh, Everybody, you know, trying to get the dollar. But why would you try to stop uh, something like this? Because this software is, uh, I mean, the ability and and how far it could go is is unlimited. Well, look. Everybody may want the big dollar. They can't get it because they don't have the software. They didn't create the software. On a side note, really, really quick, uh, I, I meant to do this at the top of the show. We'll do this really quick. Uh, very, congratu- very special congratulations to Cassie Monaco and Chris. Uh, has now been released from the uh, FCI. He is back home with his family, her husband. We did a protest out there uh, a while back, and uh, very, very happy and very uh, sincere congratulations to Cassie and, and Chris. We look forward to talking more, but that's, that's good news. I didn't want to leave that out. Uh, and we wish you the best of luck. Uh, so, David, back to the, to the software. I know we, you said you was getting ready to go into another uh, individual that, uh, I guess, had some strong uh, belief in this software as well. Well, let me make a point uh, before I get to a guy named Don Vilfer. 
Um, at the time, and I still believe now, we were the best guys in the game. That's not that's not uh, braggadocia. That is just the fact at the time. Uh, and during trial, the DHS representative by the name of Bill Witherspoon, who we interacted with uh, consistently probably for a year and a half with the Department of Homeland Security, said in open court that our software – and would cost a bit, it would cost DHS a billion dollars. So when you're talking about a billion dollars, uh, a billion dollar product, then you're talking about people don't businesses don't want to give up that kind of money. If you're the if you're the best guy in the game, they got to find a way to get rid of you because you can outcompete everybody, and that's exactly what happened to us. Now, you a lot of the information you've heard thus far on the show that we've discussed. Uh, with uh, the information discussing John Shannon, uh, uh, his his comments, all of that stuff was presented to U.S. Attorney John Walsh, and we uh, we felt at the time that obviously we were being railroaded. Obama was going to appoint John; he appointed John Walsh, and we said, "Well, we're going to try to sit down with Mr. Walsh and present a proffer." And all of this information was included, and but. Walsh ignored all of the stuff we've talked about, and, and we've only scratched some of the surface of the information we actually provided him uh, for his consideration to dismiss and his indictment and to call his his wild dog AUSA Kirsch off. Uh, that's what we attempted to do, but uh, he was just another wild dog that, that, that wanted to uh, to ravage us. And to take us down. Uh, who, who knows if he was paid? I just don't know. Uh, but uh, another individual named Don Vilfer. Now, Don Vilfer presented a report uh, to uh, John Walsh and to Assistant U.S. Attorney Kirsch that we had presented and that we were going to actually uh, present at trial. Vilfer did an investigation of the software. His background, he worked for a company out of Sacramento, California called Califorensics. Now, uh, Vilfer's background is that from 1986 to 2001, he he worked for the FBI as a supervisory special agent for the White Collar Crime and Computer Crime Squad, and he conducted and oversaw an investigation of white collar crime and computer crime. Okay. Let me stop you right there real quick. This is a guy, did you say, who deals with crimes regarding white collar? That's correct. He was a supervisor, special agent. And he, was, he, he believed in this software. He wrote an uh, independent report about the software that we were going to actually present at trial, and we're going to read a little bit of what he said about the software. So this goes back to my point, David. I'll come right back to you. It goes back to my point. If the IRP Solutions Corporation was about trying to scheme and stay under the radar, this is what criminals do. They go under the radar. Would I go higher or even get the influence of a, uh, a special agent that deals with white-collar crimes, the information about this software, knowing that is his field of expertise, which means he can spot fraud and dishonesty and games and schemes from a long distance off. See, this is the stuff that you think common sense is made of. Why, if I want to stay under the radar and commit a crime, 
why am I going this big and this public? With the people and the pedigree of the people we have talked about tonight. Yeah, I, as I mentioned earlier, for a year before we our business was raided, we invited and retained two supervisory special agents from the Denver Division of the FBI, as well, as well as uh, the recently retired special agent in charge of customs enforcement in Denver. They worked for our company, signed independent contractor agreements to be paid upon the seller's software. And as I mentioned earlier, they wrote the FBI, uh, the customs uh, special agent in charge wrote the FBI and said we had a viable product. Uh, so, but the government never, their bizarre uh, method was to, we can't allow IRP to discuss their software. We have to minimize the value of the software, and that, that's the strategy they use at trial. Well, and the only way you can do that is that you have to do something underhanded and corrupt, and your intentions are wrong. And because rem- the software stood on its own merit. Right, and remember, uh, the reason we brought Don Vilfer in, because the government was pretty much at the time claiming that our software we, was non-existent, that it was vaporware, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and some, some of what Vilfer wrote, yes. he said, we evaluated the software as it existed at the time of the execution of the search warrant, and the software as it existed in 2010. The software described above was evaluated for whether it was a functional product for law enforcement. The software, as it existed at the time of the search, had the capability to track a wealth of information about investigations. The program allowed for the gathering information about crime scenes, manpower assignments, arrests, notifications, vehicles, weapons, evidence, searches, and other relevant data. The program allowed for the addition of photos and other files, which is the audio uh, visual, video component. Uh, the follow-up tab within the program allowed assigning and tracking leads in the investigation and information regarding interviews. The prosecution phase of the software allows for the tracking of witness and, and district attorney information, exhibits, and discovery. It appears this portion of the software program can be used by an investigator or prosecutor these these this is a veteran of the fbi a supervisory special agent that specializes in white collar crime and runs a, a, a successful company dealing with forensic e-discovery and fact finding in support of complex litigation this is what he does in his career after the fbi mm-hmm. but even with this knowledge and the knowledge of John Shannon said that we were making modifications on behalf of the NYPD, which is why money was being spent with staffing companies. The government said we were just defrauding staffing companies. That's all we were doing. Defrauding them for what? We had a product. We were making modifications. And, and we were anticipating the, uh, the gaining a contract based on the work we were doing for the NYPD and Department of Homeland Security. There's nothing criminal about that. And none of this information that we have gone over tonight, was uh, no jury ever seen it. No. That is absolutely insane to me. This is stuff that you don't have to, you hear people say the adage, you don't have to take my word for it. The product was, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. This was a freight tank train moving that had never been seen. 
when you have a veteran of NYPD, and I'm going to reiterate it one more time, stating that he has never seen in his tenure the professional conduct and business practices that he, that he felt and seen with his own eyes in conversations with David Banks about this product. He just gives accolade after accolade. You're not telling me that if a juror reads that information, and to the point of the gentleman David just spoke about, there is no conviction because the prestige of the office of the NYPD and those channels and the FBI, there's a certain amount of prestige that comes with those offices. And people are more likely to believe and RP Solutions did well in saying we these people worked for RP Solutions. Well, you have to take in, into account you're talking about the jury. The, there should have never been a trial. Absolutely. Absolutely. The prosecutors have an ethical obligation to dismiss a case when there's evidence that there was actually no crime committed. Correct. Yet they refuse to do that. This thing should have never been in the trial. Judge Arguello should have threw it out. Uh, John Walsh, after receiving the proffer, should have thrown the case out. This is obvious that there's no crime, that these guys were developing software, and the staffing agencies were hired and retained a contract employee to work on the software. And then one final note. Now, in Vilfer's report, he concludes with saying a market for software that has the functionality of silk exists. And he goes on to say, it has long been a challenge of law enforcement to effectively manage data related to investigations. He says, gone are the days of paper reports and only physical files within departments. All agencies now rely on digital data to track information about their cases. There are many companies that create and market software for this purpose to law enforcement. These companies often boast of being able to manage information from dispatch through prosecution, and it appears Silk Software strives to similarly manage information throughout the criminal justice pipeline. No one software application could meet the needs of all agencies, but the functionality that we observed in our review of Silk Software would undoubtedly be of interest to many law enforcement agencies. And that was confirmed in so many ways and so many comments on our software from law enforcement. Demetrius, your thoughts? Well, we, 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 we are reliving everything that we went through in trial. All of this evidence, as you alluded to earlier, Mont, was never allowed to see and get in front of a jury. Remember, three days into, or excuse me, the second day, the jury asked, is there anything for us to consider? These notes. Well, from, yes. These notes, these letters, this, this is an independent investigator. He worked. He's uh, white collar. I mean. It validated everything we believed in. We validated everything we worked for. And to, to relive it, as all the guys are talking on the panel tonight, is very is troubling. We had such a solution that's still viable today in 2020. It was viable 14, 15 years ago. And look at the state of uh, our technology and our, our government. It's still viable. And that just amazes me that we still have, a, have the solution. We still have the answer. It's in silk. Oh. And that's available. Go ahead, David. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, a few things. This is, these are publications. 
police magazine publications and other various emails and documents from law enforcement. Uh, let's, let's start with the former Canyon City Police Chief Daniel Scholl stated he was impressed with the easiness of using the Silk software and that he would highly recommend it. Uh, you brought up the college textbook. In 2007, in the 2007 college textbook titled Criminal Investigation, authors uh, uh, are Wayne Bennett and Karen Hess said that Silk meets the standards described in the Department of Justice's National Institution, National Institute of Justice Track Crime Scene Investigation, a guide to law enforcement. So our software met DOJ standards for crime scene investigation. And this was mentioned in a college textbook by college uh, professors, I, I believe. In Philadelphia Police Department, I mentioned earlier about Jerry Cardenas, Director of Information Technology at the time. Silk looked exactly like what the Philadelphia Police Department was looking to purchase, and that the Philadelphia Police Department was very close to having the product installed prior to discovery of the FBI investigation. So at, when we can say the FBI were, was, uh, they were undermining our ability to do business, to pay our debts, that's what they were doing. They had to have something to criminalize our debt and to make it look like we were defrauding. This was, this was, a, a, this was a, a hack job. Now, uh, I'd like to, one, one more thing I'd like to say is regarding the Denver Police Department. We did a presentation for the detective division of the Denver Police Department, obviously, which is right up the road from us here in Colorado. The chief of detectives, in an email, we have this email, Dan O'Hare said that Denver Police Department had a great, quote, a great deal of interest in Silk, and that the detective division, quote, unite in praise to the IRP staff and their software product. You have got to be kidding me right now. I, 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 this is absolutely overwhelming. So, and none of this was that the jury never saw it. Well, we were having, uh, sadly, some of the law enforcement uh, that we had called, uh, there was enough information that we were able to glean from them, even though they tried to kind of put a damper uh, on our presentation, because it's still something about that that blue line that law enforcement really doesn't want to be responsible for the government not being able to get their case. So although they they testified, they didn't say the thing with the force as as which they've actually talked about it here, and to compound that problem. Judge Arguello was, wasn't going to let that stuff go to a jury to begin with. That is what... Go ahead, Clint. Yeah, every prosecutor has investigators that work in their department. So uh, Matthew Kirsch has investigators that he can call upon to do investigation about a particular suspect or what have you, okay? They could have talked with Colin Reese at the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, State of Colorado Bureau of Investigation, who called in IRP on a special uh, uh, assignment 
to help him uh, identify a way to organize the investigative information of a Korean prostitution ring that was operating in late 1999. This was one of the challenges that was put to us during the course of investigating the software. So Colin Reese was one of our witnesses, okay? Uh, Also, the peace officer standards and training in every state. There's a way that you get your license to carry a badge and to carry a weapon. It is called the post training, peace officer standards and training. Our product was pushed at that level to to be the the standard that was used for investigations at the uh, post facility. Um, the, The last thing I will mention is the commission on accreditation of law enforcement agencies, okay? The product was, was, uh, was, was forwarded at that level as well. So we, we built in standards, best practices, uh, reminders, all of these things that were the excellence in case investigative life cycle and an investigations process um, to be uh, able to be accredited with investigations by the Commission uh, on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies pushing silk uh, for, for the acceptation uh, at that level. Well, look, um, man, this is – how do you have this much evidence, this much uh, preparation, and really – uh, your work ethic and the work in progress, what's going on, this simply was work, work was going on here. And why would you criminalize this type of work? As you guys have explained the software tonight and to David's point and all of you guys, man, this is some serious work that went into this. And to basically move from that point, Blindly, but yet deliberately, because you cho- you chose not to see the facts. How do you ignore these facts? And how does a how does a judge allow a case to go forward with this much legitimate information that, without question, says these men were simply doing a job? That's all they were doing. You don't have work pending on that level. Unless you're working, unless you're doing something. That is, to me, is what makes the actions of Walsh's office and Kirsch, uh, Sunita Hazra, and Federal Judge Christina Aguayo's actions so egregious. So very egregious here. Go ahead, William. You know, one of the things that I, I want to be very clear, what these guys produced the effort that they put forward, you wouldn't find in most large organizations. I've been in IT for 27 years, and what these guys did, what they put together, was so complete. It was overwhelming. You had training. You had a modular design application. You had, I think it actually could run on multiple platforms, and then you had um, the sharing, the data sharing. You had the business development. You hear, you heard Clint talking about the education, the training that they personally had to do to get the software certified, to be in front of these people's faces, 
to talk to, reach the right people, go to the conferences. But these guys, five guys, put together something so amazing. And that's what our listeners need to understand. I'm talking about large organizations struggle to do what these guys did. And it was I can't I can't say it enough. It was leaps and bounds before its time. It is still viable today. And as we just came off of the anniversary of 9/11, we got to go back to this topic. Are we any safer today? No, we're not. We're not any safer. We just talked about this. We're not any safer. This software right now could be implemented and could change the security of our country. And what I mean change the security, the mindset, the information that's out there, that the organizations now can it be transparent to them. Those persons of interest that are operating on college campuses, in backwoods, whatever, doing any kind of little recruiting that they're doing, Right now, on the home front, these are not people that's sitting in the Middle East or whatever. They're right here. They're five miles away, 100 miles away, 1,000 miles away. And they are right now plotting and scheming and doing what they need to do. Some little organization may know something about them. A larger organization would need to know about them. They're not talking. They're not sharing information. Silk would provide them the capability of doing it today, right now. That And that tells you, 15 years later, there's no software that I've ever seen that operates. 15 years later, that hasn't been upgraded, improved. Think about that. That's cars yep. that don't make it 15 years. That's the reality of what we're talking about. And I think our listeners need to understand that because as I'm sitting here as a part of this show, that's what I'm thinking about, just the phenomenal capability that was there and still exists today. Well, look, um, you, you don't have enough time in a show to, to get to all of this information. Uh, this is probably the, one of the most informative shows that I can remember on this level, but we are in a different state of mind at this point with the, uh, the RP5 bringing to the landscape, if you will, the details. And no wonder uh, we have called for the impeachment of Federal Judge Christina Aguayo. There's a reason for that. And the more you dig into this story, the more you read about this story, the more facts begin to come out in this story. I am convinced that we will call even louder for the impeachment and hold every person accountable for the actions that took place here. Because all I've seen tonight is a group of men that came together and worked extremely hard on a product that can help not only help them as a business, but help the safety and security of the United States. And one final note, Lamont, before you go to break, um, this is what, what the, these officials did as far as uh, AUSA Curse, John Walsh, U.S. Attorney for Colorado, Assistant U.S. Attorney Sunita Hazra, and the judges uh, involved in this case is what they call 
outrageous conduct. Uh, in, in United States v. Russell in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court acknowledged that when government officials engage in such outrageous conduct as what occurred in the IRP case, that, quote, due process principles would absolutely bar the government from invoking judicial processes to obtain a conviction. SCOTUS went on to say that uh, a proceeding is fundamentally unfair under the due process clause if, quote, it is shocking to the universal sense of justice. That clearly is what occurred in this case. Mm-hmm. They should not have used judi- judicial processes and, and used the justice system to unlawfully gain a conviction with full knowledge that no crime was committed. Go ahead, Dave. Well, when you look at all of this, you see the injustice that occurred. You see that you had a prosecutor that was overreaching on everything. They did a grand jury in 2007 that did not indict. Then they did another grand jury in 2009 with one FBI agent testifying, and there they indicted. And he didn't even have evidence to show the grand jury. Then you go to the point where we go to trial, and they have all of this evidence showing that everything that they said is false, and they still push forward. How can you take people's lives and destroy them that way? I mean, there's no answer to that because it seems so unreal. It seems so unreal that these actions, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about the work that went into this, uh, this software. I'm not an IT guy. And I am overwhelmed with the amount of work you know had to have gone into this. Just from what I'm hearing from, from, the, from the people in law enforcement and the, the demonstrations and the consistent calling and working and talking and trying to get stuff implemented and all the work that is involved here. And that's why, again, as David alluded to, should have never went to trial, should have never made it into a courtroom because this is not criminal. On any level, and what is, what is so egregious to me beyond that is the actions of federal judge Christine Aguayo, who had the power and the authority to dismiss and throw out this before it ever went to a jury, to court. It should have never arrived there. To me, that is, that is so troubling to me because it, should have, it just simply should not have happened. And we're going to take a quick break. Coming back with the closing segment, the IRP5 unveiling the software, the details are over the top. We deal with it on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders, 
30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth had started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. And does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight here on AJC Radio, we have been really, at least I speak for myself, absolutely floored with the clear evidence of the complete and total innocence of the IRP-5. In every possible angle, every possible way, it is crystal clear that no crime was ever committed in this case. And we're not just taking the IRP-5's word for it. Every person we have talked about tonight on this show has given major accolades to the work and the ethic of the IRP-5. And that's from high-ranking officials in law enforcement. Uh, This is really, this really blows my mind here. David, you wanted to conclude with something tonight. Yeah, I wanted to talk. We actually, uh, we discussed, uh, you discussed that there never should have been a crime. Well, never should have been a prosecution and indictment. Uh, And that was confirmed by a former federal appeals judge, retired federal appeals judge, H. Lee Sarakins, who wrote, uh, about the case, not only in his Huffington Post blog, but also discussed the case with the Washington Post, both of which he said the government's contention that their business was nothing but a scam defies reality. I think we've, uh, we've confirmed uh, that tonight and, and support and, and show full support for Sarakin's statements. Now, in his blog, he went, went ahead and uh, made these comments. According to H. Lee Sarakin, he said, if a scam, said Sarakin, would you single out law enforcement agencies as your sole customers? Would you work for years developing the software program? Would you leave other gainful employment to join uh, uh, the venture? Would you hire law enforcement personnel to work on the project? Would you spend your own time and money for years improving the software? Would you personally guarantee the corporate debt and risk of your own fi- and risk your own financial security? If a scam, would the perpetrators make some money out of it? The only possible way the defendants could profit was if the company was a success. So these are the words of Federal Judge H. Lee Sarakin, who reviewed the exhaustively reviewed the case, including trial uh, transcripts and determined that there was uh, misconduct here, that there were constitutional violations, yet uh, sent letters to Obama, sent letters to uh, Attorney General Lynch at the time, uh, who was overseeing the DOJ. Nobody did anything. Sent letters to Cory Booker, Senator Cory Booker, and others. Nobody, with all their talk, these politicians talk about justice and criminal justice, Nobody stepped up to do anything. And this type of evidence, as, as you, you can attest to, you guys took dozens of trips to Washington, D.C. Uh, to present this case. Nobody did anything. And, you know, to that point, David, you know, you talk about retired appellate uh, judge H. Lee Sarakin. I mean, we had Andrew Alvarelli on the show the other week. He saw the software. He knows the business. He knows there was, there was no crime. We got Harry, uh, Harvey Silverglade. The author of Three Felonies a Day, he looked into the case. He said there's no crime. There's no way this should have happened. Alan uh, Hershowitz, who's been called the best criminal attorney in the world, these people who have looked at this have come to the conclusion that there was no crime. 
how did the judge come to the conclusion to allow this to come before her bench? Those are the things that we have to deal with and let the American people know that if it happened in this case and you have this many retired judges, uh, assistant U.S. attorneys formerly that say that there was no crime here, it could happen to you, it could happen to your family, and what will your recourse be? Oh, absolutely right. And I'll tell you what, folks, tune in next next week. Uh, this story continues has many goes in many different directions, but at the end of the day, the direction that it goes is clear injustice that happened with the RP5. And these men targeted by the U.S. Attorney's Office, John Walsh, Matthew Kirsch, Sunita Hazra, all of the above, should be held accountable for the actions taken against these men and the wrongful conviction that these men have suffered. Eight years. It's a long time. We will pick this up on the other side of next week. This is AJC Radio. Until next time, good night, America. You know, you know what? No one has asked the question, and perhaps I just haven't seen it yet, but what they, in terms of their software, what they were doing was of great value. Have you ever thought that there's a competitor? The amalgamum of peculiar circumstances is so outrageous that, you know, anyone's conscience cannot sit there and say simply a procedural error. No. This is gross, outrageous conduct beyond what happens in a civilized society, let alone a civilized courtroom. So I have to ask and answer the question, who are the competitors?